The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. All right, we're going to pick up in Exodus 32. So just a few chapters past where our brother read. If you're using the Pew Bible, page 85 will put you there. Page 85 will take you to Exodus 32. It's a chapter chock full of spiritual nourishment. And so we're going to go slowly through it. If you have the bulletin, if you received a bulletin this morning, there are seven movements, I think, in the text. And we'll look at those one at a time. The title of today's sermon is After Failure. And I fail and you fail. So what a relevant chapter. After Failure. This is Exodus 32. So now join me in Exodus 32. If you'll look up just one verse behind, okay? So the last verse of chapter 31, verse 18. And he gave to Moses, this is the Lord, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. God himself wrote the tablets that have the testimony, which primarily consist of the Ten Commandments. Let's see how they respond in the exact moment that God has finished signing the Ten Commandments. Now, Exodus 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So here in the very moment, that the Lord has signed the testimony with his own finger, as it were, the people decide to create different gods, counterfeit gods. And they claim impatience that they believe they're entitled to. If you're keeping track, Moses has been up on the cloud with the Lord for 40 days. That was too long in their estimation. And while Moses is gone, the people no longer have the presence of strong godly leadership And we'll just say things do not go well without the presence of strong godly leadership. If you're a parent, you know that leaving your children, even for an evening, with a babysitter you trust is still rather terrifying. We have a phrase in our culture, when the cat's away, what's the rest of it? The mites will play. Here we see a passage that just reminds us, uh, at least by implication, that even though we may chafe against it at times, if God has ever blessed you anywhere with the presence of strong, godly leaders, that's actually for your benefit and for your good. Parents are a blessing, uh, Lord willing. Teachers are a blessing. It is a good thing for us to have accountability through wise oversight. We should be cautious then if we find ourselves ungrateful and impatient at the pace with which God is working. So notice again, verse 1 said that when the people saw that Moses had delayed, this was enough for them to be angry. Now Aaron was just given the responsibility of priest. That's what Mike read for us in chapter 29. So Aaron is to lead as priest to Yahweh. But now notice sadly, verse 2 of Exodus 32. So Aaron, who's just been assigned priest of the Lord said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. 
Now, I won't belabor this because I did mention it last Sunday, but don't forget this gold was given to them by the Lord when He in His grace and mercy plundered the Egyptians to provide for their daily needs. They've now taken the gold that is from the Lord and is for the Lord to build the tabernacle so that He can dwell in their midst, and they've given it to a counterfeit God of their own making. Verse 4, Aaron received the gold from their hand, fashioned it with a graving tool, and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel. And notice what they attribute to this golden cow that they've just crafted, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to, and if you had the Hebrew, it's Yahweh. So now Aaron calls the golden calf Yahweh, and the people say the golden calf is the thing that really brought them out of the land of Egypt. Verse 6, and they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, now giving sacrificial worship to a counterfeit God. But we get a hint as to why in the end of verse 6. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. The word play is admittedly a little bit of a difficult word to translate. It can mean multiple things. But in Exodus 26, or sorry, in Genesis 26, verse 28, the word means sexual immorality. And in 1 Corinthians 10, when we're told not to follow the example of the Israelites. We read this in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6. These things took place as examples for us that we would not desire evil as they did. Verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of they were, because it said the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as they did. So the word play is referring to revelry, tied to drinking that is more than just normal drinking, but drunken revelry and immorality. Well, what's interesting through this whole thing is that they are calling this golden calf the Lord, and they're saying that this golden calf brought them up out of the land of Egypt. And here, I think, is a principle that we should know. Counterfeit gods are made so that we can incur wickedness and call it worship. So counterfeit gods are made so that we can pursue wickedness and call it worship. I want to give you um, some observations just praying through this passage this week. If you're a note taker, I'm I'm giving you four sub points here right now, okay? But four things that I think this passage shows us that tend to be true of counterfeit gods when we make idols. These are four qualities that I think are true of them from this passage. First, our counterfeit gods are created. We make them off of things that are created. A cow is a created being, which makes it unintimidating. Think of how we today even are happy to only worship what we believe we can see and touch and handle and know. Science is a good thing. Science is a gift of God to observe the universe that he's created. But scientism, the belief that it's only true if I saw it or touched it or handled it, sometimes in philosophy called verificationism. It's only true or real if I saw it and touched it and handled it. Authority cannot ever exist beyond the created realm is evil. It shows that as humans, we we will only accept what we think is tame and controllable. So things that are created 
are a category of counterfeit gods. Secondly, though, things that we can control. The golden calf was man-made. And since they made it, it has limits in terms of what it can or can't ask of them. It's something that they get to control. It was made by their own hands. We hear similar phrases today through expressive individualism. Well, this is my life. This is my body. These are my choices, my truth, my authority, my morality. In fact, that causes us to lean into perspectivalism. Whatever I think is the case must be the case. If I say the calf brought me out of Egypt, then the calf brought me out of Egypt. So again, we have created and control categories of idolatry. But the third one I would say is comfort. Here's what else is interesting about the golden calf. Not only are they worshiping something created rather than the creator, they're also worshiping something they can control rather something over them. But third, they're worshiping something that never corrects them, something that only stands in a position of affirmation or comfort. We read in verse 6 that the thing about the golden calf that they liked is in front of the golden calf, they could live however they want. They could drink and rise up to play. Golden calf surely won't correct them for this. This is simply the moral relativism and hedonism that is so common in our culture still. But a fourth thing that I think this passage shows us that are common qualities in counterfeit gods is approval. Aaron couldn't imagine being on the wrong side of the mob. And when all the people are consensing together, they decide that whatever the group thinks must be correct. Social consensus determining truth and ethics and wisdom. So we have counterfeit gods when we worship what is created, what we can control, what allows us to remain in comfort, and what allows us to have approval. But let me simplify all of the mirage of counterfeit gods. This is simply sin. It's sin from three obvious standpoints. First, they are simply disobeying what the Lord has said. Remember the Ten Commandments begin. You shall have no other gods before me. They've already picked another one. Second, you shall not make any graven image of me and attribute my qualities to that graven image. They've directly broken the second as well. Sin is simply disobedience. But sin is also distrust. We need this thing. We need something other than the Lord. We need something other than the Lord to provide what we desire. And third, sin is also distortion. When we think make, we can make God in our own image. Let me quote R.C. Sproul. I love how he described what was happening in this passage. He wrote, The cow, I love that he just calls it a cow rather than a golden calf. The cow gave no law and demanded no obedience. The cow had no wrath or justice or holiness to be feared. The cow was deaf, dumb, and impotent. But at least it could not intrude on their fun and call them to judgment. This was a religion designed by men, practiced by men, and ultimately useless to men. That's a good explanation of what man-made counterfeit gods are always like, useless. Remember this morning, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So the first movement of this passage this morning showed us how in Moses' short absence, the people immediately sought a counterfeit God. But now the second movement is going to show the Lord's 
righteous anger at the people's betrayal. Pick up with me in verse 7 of Exodus 32. And the Lord said to Moses, go down, notice his use of pronouns, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Why is the Lord saying your people who you brought up? I mean, the Lord said they were my people and the Lord brought them out of Egypt. So why is the Lord calling them your people? For the same reason on some evenings I come home and my wife says, do you want to know what your son did today? (laughs) She is distancing herself from that child for that evening. Whatever he did tonight is your influence. It's not my influence, right? The Lord is effectively disowning them. Verse 8, he describes why. They have turned aside quickly, very quickly. Out of the way that I commanded them, they have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Please notice something. God knows everything. Didn't he just quote them verbatim? But he was on the mountain, right? Oh, he's everywhere. He knows everything, everywhere. He knows our thoughts before we conceive them. There is nothing hidden from the eye of the Lord. Don't ever deceive yourself into thinking, no one will know. Yes, he knows. He always knows. Word for word. Notice the word corrupted. Verse 7, he says, they have corrupted themselves. It's actually the Hebrew word for spoil. It would be like milk that is curdled. God has perfectly moral Clarity. So often when we describe something, if we were to describe this moment, had we been there, we might say, well, you know, we just had a few drinks. We just had a fun night. But the Lord has perfect moral judgment. We do not. So now notice verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, this is the first time in the Bible the Lord uses the phrase stiff-necked. It'll be used, unfortunately, many more times, but this is the first time the Bible uses it. You can picture the meaning of the term because it's such a descriptive term. It's normally used of an animal. Imagine if you're walking that dog that you've been trying to train, and as you're walking, the dog sees something that the dog thinks (laughs) is worth bolting into traffic for. And when you go to pull the leash back on the dog, they stiffen their neck and move against your prompting. This is how the Lord is describing the Israelites. Verse 10, now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I might make a great nation of you. Shocking. The Lord is now saying, Moses, let me get rid of everybody else, and I'll restart with just you. Now, the Lord could have done that, because God made his promise to Abraham that he would multiply a great nation through him. As long as he preserves just one remnant, he could still fulfill that promise. And it's not without precedent. We're only in the book of Exodus. And in Genesis, God did restart the whole world through just Noah. So we're at the edge of our seat thinking, what is going to happen next? Is Moses going to say, sure, <laughs> yeah, wipe him out, restart with me? I mean, that seems very plausible. Now notice how amazing verse 11 is in light of that. But Moses implored the Lord his God. 
and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against, now notice the pronouns, against your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Now, just to be clear, Moses is not having a debate of, no, no, they're not mine, they're yours. It's not that. He's saying, Lord, the glory is yours and the power is yours. It's not mine. Verse 12, notice how concerned Moses is of the Lord's glory. Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Moses' concern is the Lord's reputation in the light of the Egyptians whom he had just righteously punished. Again, God's glory is chief in Moses' mediation. Even further yet, glory in verse 13. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. So Moses is telling them, Your glory is so important. Your power brought them out of here. Your glory is so important. We want the Egyptians to know that you're glorious. And your glory is so important that you fulfill your word in the spirit of which you gave it. Could you restart with just me? Yes. But that doesn't seem to be the spirit of multiplying and increasing the people of Abraham. This is an exceptional prayer. Now notice verse 14. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Well, surely there's some big theological things here. Let me take a moment to help us think through the word of God as as best as we can. Someone might ask, well, was the Lord really going to wipe everybody out? And the answer is yes, he absolutely could have. That would have been totally just for him to have done. And yet the very dilemma is an opportunity for the Lord to continue to grow Moses. One commentator writes, earlier the Lord had needed to persuade Moses to accept the Lord's plans, but now Moses uses the Lord's own words to persuade him to have mercy on his people. This displayed the depth of victory that the Lord had won in Moses' heart. See, the Lord is even ordaining this exchange for the good of Moses' growth. But further, you could be confused. Josh, in verse 14, it says the Lord relented. Does that mean God can change his mind? There's about 40 times in the Old Testament where we read the Lord relented or repented or regretted. How should we understand what these mean? Because the Bible also says, I am the Lord. I never change. I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. How do we make sense of these apparent contradictions? Well, the the short answer is in the Bible, when we read the Lord relented or repented or regretted something, This is the Lord's way of personally interacting with humans so that we can understand his severe disappointment in what has happened. Think of Genesis 6 when God says the Lord regretted that he had made humanity. It's not as if the Lord was thinking, I can't believe these people are so bad. I never would have expected them to be so bad. He knew that we would. But he's letting us know in the strongest of possible terms how severely grieved he is over how things have gone. God's character is unchanging. He is immutably the same at all times. Therefore, God is not reactive or responsive. 
But God is showing to us his righteous assessment of our sinfulness. But even if you're like, Josh, I'm not a theologian, how would I have gotten that from today's passage? There's a clue, isn't there? Isn't there a clue that God was not going to wipe out Israel? He sent Moses down the mountain. Why send Moses down at all if he's just going to reset and rebuild with Moses? The answer is because God is sending a mediator down the mountain. And that mediator will intercede for his people. And we can see the thread that God's weaving. All right, you could have another question. You could be thinking, Josh, are you saying, I'm confused. Does prayer change things or not? The answer is yes. When Psalm 106 describes this interchange, we read this in Psalm 106, verse 23. Therefore, the Lord said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. The threat is real, not theoretical. And yet their salvation is assured through a mediation of an intercessor whom God has ordained. So don't forget James 5. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. God does work through prayer to accomplish his ordained purposes. Moses here shows us what a righteous mediator would be like. This is his most exemplary moment in his entire life. When Israel is at his lowest, in God's grace, Moses is at his highest. Here he mediates based on the glory of God. And we realize that God would have righteously destroyed Israel had not there been someone who was praying for them. Now we sang a song this morning, and I hope you realize how wonderful it is. The song we sang this morning reminds us that if there wasn't someone consistently mediating on our behalf, our salvation would be in jeopardy. But praise God for Hebrews 7, verse 25. Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. He is able to save to the uttermost all who draw nigh to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Romans 8, verse 33. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God interceding for us. Brother and sister, when you sin, when you fail, sing to yourself what we sang this morning. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Praise God for a mediator. Moses gives us a picture of what Jesus will fully fulfill. But let's continue in the narrative, Exodus 32. Let's now pick up in verse 15. Moses now will see the betrayal himself and will express righteous anger. Exodus 32, verse 15. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides. On the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. Praise God that he wrote his own word. 
Verse 17, when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. Verse 18, but he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. Now, please stick with me. If you've been with me through Exodus, do you remember what they did right when they got to the other side of the Red Sea? They sang in Exodus 15. And here they're singing again, but the music sounds different. Just a reminder for you this morning, not the main point of the sermon, but know that there's some music that you know is for glorifying God, and there's other music that is not. And it is tied to a different kind of living. Verse 19, And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Many people reading the Bible at this point think that Moses has done something sinful. I'd like to explain to you why he has not done something sinful here. First, because when Moses is breaking the tablets, remember they are the book of the testimony of the covenant God has with man. Therefore, he's breaking the tablets symbolically to show that they have broken the covenant. Douglas Stewart, an Old Testament scholar, agrees with me. He writes, Moses' breaking of the tablets was an important symbolic act done carefully, deliberately, and openly so that the Israelites could see how they had violated the covenant. There's another reason, though, that we know what Moses is doing here is not sinful, and that's because when Moses does have anger that's out of line, God tells him, Numbers will record when Moses' anger is out of line and he disobeys the Lord and he hits the rock twice and the Lord rebukes him for his anger. The Lord does not rebuke him here. And there's a third clue that makes, I think, demonstrably and arguably clear that what Moses is doing here is not sinful and it's in the Hebrew. And that's in verse 10 and verse 19. But your English may help as well. Did you notice in verse 10 and 19, the description of the Lord's anger and the description of Moses' anger is exactly the same verbiage. They're experiencing the right kind of anger. They're both experiencing righteous anger. Now, the Bible does warn us about sinful anger, surely. But the Bible does say there's a kind of anger that is righteous. Think of David when he's righteously angry that Goliath is mocking God's name. Think of Jesus when he's righteously angry that they've set up money-changing tables that keep the Gentiles out of the temple. Think of Paul when he's righteously angry about the things that he still does that he wishes he wouldn't keep doing. So you might ask, Josh, how do I know if I've crossed the line from righteous anger to sinful anger? And the Bible tells us in Ephesians 4, verse 26, the Bible says, be angry, which is a command actually. Be angry, but sin not. All right, how do I know? Be angry, But sin not, how do I know if I've crossed the line? The verse goes on to say this. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Give no opportunity to the devil. How do I know if my anger is righteous rather than sinful? Well, well, first, is it in accord with things that are true? But here's another really good demonstration. If I've been angry for a while, probably not righteous anger. James 1 verse 20, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Also notice, though, in today's passage that there is a treatment towards sin that we don't talk about very much anymore. 
We often talk about sin casually or lightly, or we just avoid the topic at all. But the Bible doesn't. The Bible talks about sin as deathly and dangerous. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. Better to go to heaven with one eye and one arm than to go to hell with both. Of course, he's speaking metaphorically, but strongly, right? Paul in Romans 8, verse 13 says, put to death the deeds of the body so you will live. So when the Bible talks about sin, it uses strong, violent language because it's a cancer that needs chemo to kill it. We need these reminders, and we see them here in verse 20. Continue with me in the passage, Exodus 32. Look at verse 20. This is radical, but right. Verse 20, he took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Do you remember what the water was like when God touched the water and they drank it? It went from bitter to sweet. But now when sin has contaminated the water, it's gone from sweet to bitter. Listen, sin always works that way. It always works that way. Up front, there's this promise of how great it's going to be. And in the end, there's a bitter aftertaste. John Owen rightly tells us, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Brother, sister, this week, as sin tempts you, crush it to powder. Now we see in verse 21 through 24, I think the most touching and human section of the passage, Moses confronts his own brother. Verse 21, Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you've brought such a great sin upon them? Verse 22, and Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, which Moses does know the people. They're set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Notice Aaron has so far taken zero responsibility for his involvement. He's convinced that it's the people that deserve all the blame. Aaron's response has been pathetic thus far in blame shifting, and now it moves to comedic in verse 24. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. <laughs> um, by the way, that is the same logic used for the theory of evolution. Did you, did you notice that? Uh, there was this thing, and I don't know what happened, and then out came this perfectly designed universe. Sin is always stupid. Sin is always stupid. Now, Aaron's poor response reminds us that confession means agreement. Did you know that the word confess means agree? To confess means to see, get, to see sin like God sees it. So we, we can never see sin like I see it. Because I have a great editing team in my head. <laughs> we need to see sin like God sees it. Now if we're going to see sin like God sees it, that's scary, right? Because then I have to own my responsibility. What would encourage you to do something so scary? Proverbs 28, verse 13. Whoever conceals his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses it and forsakes it will receive mercy. 
Think of Psalm 32. David had sinned with Bathsheba, and he said, when I kept silent, my bones even ached. I felt physically sick from hiding my sin. Day by day, your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up like the heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you. I no longer covered my iniquity, and you forgave. First John 1, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. Listen, your whole life, Maybe you're the kind of person that when you make a mistake, you're really hard on yourself. Maybe you're the kind of person that if you mess something up growing up, your mom or dad was really hard on you. Maybe your teachers were, maybe your coach were, maybe your boss is now. I have good news for you. You can confess because God will forgive. God is gracious and good, much more gracious and good than we tend to hope or think, which enables us to tell the truth. The story is told in the early 1900s, that the Times, the newspaper of London, had an article that they wrote to interact with everybody in England. And the article was titled, What's Wrong with the World Today? And the story is told that G.K. Chesterton responded with this essay, Dear Sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> that ability to answer honestly is something the Christian can do because we know the Lord's willingness to forgive. Now let's look in verse 25 through 29. Moses is now going to execute justice. This is perhaps the hardest passage in today's text for us as modern people. Verse 25, when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. All the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill, not the word murder, but the word kill, his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, today, you've been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. Well, probably this section is the hardest for us, given our modern sensibilities. Many people have said things to me like this, Josh, this is why I hate the Bible. There's people dying. How do we make sense of this? Well, a few things might be helpful. Partly, we should just acknowledge that we have moved so far from seeing sin as God sees it, that we have a revulsion to actual justice. We no longer know what it is. If we conjure a God who is all fire and no mercy, we've made up an idol. But it's also true that if we conjure a God who is love without righteous justice, we also have made an idol. We've made a counterfeit God. Romans 6.23 tells us why this passage happened. For the wages of sin is what? Death. And if the sacrificial system has taught them anything, it should have taught them that sin requires life and only a substitute could be a gracious reason why I could continue to live. I mean, they're executing animals, as we read earlier, in the morning and in the evening to show that their sin is ever before them. And only by grace is God allowing a substitute to take the place of their own deserved consequences. 
I want to remind you something this morning, especially if you're here today and you don't know what it's like to have the forgiveness and peace that a confession brings through faith and a substitute. I want you to know that it is actually urgently necessary that you come to God for salvation. Not only is it wonderful and joyful and good, but it's also an urgently important decision. In Exodus 12, they trust in the Passover lamb. In Exodus 14, those who don't trust in the Passover lamb are drowned in the sea. And here in Exodus 13 or 32, those who will not come taste death. Would you look back in verse 26? I want you to see that everybody had a chance. Look in verse 26. Because I fail and you fail. So what do we do after we fail? Verse 26. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. See, that's for anybody. Come to me. Everybody failed. So who's going to come to the Lord? This is best illustrated in the Gospels. On the same night, Peter betrays Jesus and Judas betrays Jesus. One runs from Christ, and after he's resurrected, Peter runs to Christ. After we fail, there's only one thing we can do. Come to the Lord's side. Those who did not come to the Lord's side, 3,000 were executed. But in Acts 2, when Peter said, you crucified Jesus, but if you will believe in him, come to the Lord's side, how many were saved? 3,000 again. This passage reminds us that salvation is urgent. We can be saved from the wrath of God that we deserve, but only if we come to the Lord, the precious lamb who takes away our sin. Moses realizes we need this. And so let's continue. This is the final movement of the text today. Number seven, Moses, Moses' offer. Verse 30, join me in verse 30 of Exodus 32. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Moses realizes sin requires a life because our life deserves death. And Moses offers now himself to propitiate, to cover, to make amends, to atone. Verse 31, so Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. Verse 32, but now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. In the Bible, we read about a book of life, which is about eternal life. We also read about a book of the living, which is about earthly life. There are two books. Which one is being referred to here? Probably both. Moses is saying, let my life be lost. Let me be damned if I could take the place of the Israelites. Verse 33, but the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Whose sin is he going to visit? Not the people that are already dead. The people who came to the Lord's side. When will their sin be visited? Not by Moses, because he needs it to be visited too. When will their sin be visited? On Mount Calvary. 
There the Lord will visit the sin of all of us who fail. And yet none of us have to be known as failures because the perfect Son of God has taken our failure on His body and paid for it all, saying it is finished, risen from the dead. Romans 3 tells us all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and yet any can be justified by His grace as a gift through redemption in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This showed God's righteousness because in His forbearance He had passed over former sins. The day He visited was the day of the cross. Moses, though, does show us at least in preview, the best qualities that Jesus will perfect. Moses was rejected by the people, so was the Lord. Moses was willing to give his life, but Moses couldn't because Moses is a sinner too. So Jesus gave his life as a sinless sacrifice. Well, what's the resolution? Well, I won't read the whole chapter 33 like we have today slowly, but I want to point out just a couple verses from it to show you how the gospel comes home. God does something really interesting in Exodus 33. Look with me, if you will, in verse 3 of the next chapter, Exodus 33. The Lord has already told them to depart and move on, but now notice verse 3. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Do you understand the offer God has given them? You can have the wealth, you can have the power, you can have the land flowing with milk and honey, but you won't have me. This is actually what most Americans conceive of as religion. I get benefits, but I don't have to have God smack in the middle of my life. Totally, I'll take that. But notice how these people respond in verse 4. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. No one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you're stiff-necked. If for a moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments, which will now become the gold for the tabernacle. By taking off this gold, they're recognizing we want God in the midst of our life. We don't want the benefits. We don't want just afterlife. We want life to know God in the center of our life. But Moses drives it home. Look down to verse 15. Moses said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. Today's passage showed us Israel at their lowest and Moses at his highest. Israel's lowest is not so low as to be beyond the saving grace of God and neither is yours. No matter how low our lowest is, we can come to the Lord's side. But also Moses' highest is not high enough for him to be his own savior, and neither is yours. Your best day is not good enough. There has to be someone who only had best days, perfection from beginning to end, and that person is Jesus Christ. Putting those two things together, here's what we can say this morning. We are more wicked than we might want to realize or ever care to admit from God's all-seeing judgment. And yet... 
God is more gracious than we could ever dare to hope or have any right to expect. This passage shows us that there is an amazing, perfect mediator who did come and who still intercedes before the throne of God, and his name is Jesus. But hear me this morning. This passage also shows that the goal of the gospel is not to have God's benefits, but to have God himself. If you want the Lord, you want the true gospel, that means you want God in the center of your life. Not the peripheral blessings, but the tabernacle right in the middle. If you want the gospel, you'll know it when you say this. Lord, if you do not come with me, I don't want to go at all. Is it not your presence that makes me distinct? This morning, I want to encourage you to consider where you want God. In the back pocket on your own terms or in the center on his terms. Let's pray together this morning. God, thank you for a passage that shows failure and surely we must see our own sin, our impatience when we don't think you're working fast enough, our ingratitude when we forget your goodness, how quickly we can side with the majority and do what is evil. Thank you, Lord, that the passage does not end without hope. It tells us that we could come to the Lord's side because there's a perfect mediator who has taken our place. Perhaps this morning someone needs to come to the Lord's side because if they remain on the wrong side, they will suffer the consequences of their own sin. The wages of sin is death and you are just and you will righteously punish sinners. So Lord, help them to run to the cross today urgently, not to delay this decision, but to urgently put their faith in Jesus so that they can be saved from wrath. But Lord, let no one make that decision unless our heart is like Moses. We don't want just the blessings. We don't want the periphery. We want you at the center. Without your presence, life isn't even worth living. So God, remind us again what the goal of the gospel is. It is to bring us to relationship with you to know you, to love you, to walk with you. Lord, do that in your people today for your own glory and remind us what a good God you are that you sent your son down the mountain and that he went up to Mount Calvary and that he intercedes for us at this very moment if our faith is in him. In his name we pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.